Hello, friends, and welcome to Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things reader's advisory, collection development, and reference right into your ears. I'm Susan McGuire, Senior Editor for Collection Management and Library Outreach at Booklist, here to guide you through whatever book or library-adjacent topics catch my fancy and the fancy of the world at large. In this episode, we're leaving the familiar planes of reality for supernatural spaces that are spooky, vampirically romantic, or just metaphorically otherworldly. What does that even mean? Well, it means I stretched a metaphor. It also means that I talked to everyone's favorite horror librarian, Becky Spratford, about horror and feelings, what's happening in the genre, and how you can better serve your horror-loving patrons. Then, Booklist audio editor Heather Booth shares some of her picks for celebrity memoirs on audio read by the celebs themselves. Finally, Booklist's own Maggie Reagan talks about reading like a teen and a couple of forthcoming books she's very excited about. Now, don't worry if you can't keep up with all the great books we mention, because as always, every title we mention is included in the show notes, which can be found at booklistonline.com shelf hyphen care. Here we go. Becky Spratford is the librarian mastermind behind RA for All, where she shares her insight into readers' advisory training for all library workers. Get it? RA for All. Mm hmm. She's also, like, really into horror. In addition to reviewing horror for Booklist, hooray and thank you, Becky, she works with the Horror Writers of America to connect librarians to genre resources, and she's the author of the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror from ALA Editions, the third edition of which will be out in 2020. So those are her credentials. Great, fine. Now, here's our interview. Small warning before you plow ahead. She and I are both Jersey girls who talk very fast and get all excited about stuff, so I'm just going to gently remind you that all the titles we discuss will be in the show notes at booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. Enjoy! All right. Hi, Becky. Thanks for joining me at Booklist HQ. Thanks for having me. I'm ready to talk about books that famously frighten me. So you are the library world's horror expert. You're the, the world's scariest librarian. I know. It's Is kind of a, it's a fun title to title? have. It's yeah. super fun. Actually, when my first book came out with ALA, they called me the library world's horror maven. Oh, that's good. So let's prove it. So I want to talk to you about horror. Horror, I think like a lot of I mean, I guess all genre fiction kind of has this where librarians who don't read it are hesitant to talk about it with patrons because they feel like they won't know what they're talking about, etc. I have never had the problem of being afraid to look like I don't know what I'm talking about. So that's a little foreign to me. But I want to talk a little bit about what people like about horror so that um, we can kind of understand what patrons are looking for. Sure. And I think you hit at one of the appeals when you were talking about people being a little nervous to talk to people. Because like romance, horror is a genre of the emotion. It's about how it makes you feel. Now, they're completely different feelings, of course. But the point of horror is to make you feel something real. I like to say the authors just take words and string them together in their brains and put them on a page. And then all of a sudden they leap out at you and you want to run away and hide, put the book in the freezer, bury it in the backyard. I've had patrons tell me that. And the same with romance, right? They make you want to fall in love and feel all these feelings. So I think that's hard for people to understand if they don't feel that way. Right. One of the things I always say to library workers is 
You don't need to be afraid of your horror readers. They're not monsters. They just like to read about them. <laughs> yeah. So when you're talking about the fact that it appeals to emotion and you don't get that emotion from reading it, it's you feel like you can't talk about it. But I'm here to say no, as long as you understand you might not want to be scared by the books you're reading, but the person in front of you does, help them find what scares them. It's different for everyone. Right. It's not like you can say, hey, let's pick a monster and that's what's going to work for you. Horror is much more than putting the books into categories based on the monster. And in fact, a lot of books have monsters of different types. You might have vampires and zombies in a book mm-hmm. or um, animals gone wild and a zombie or different things, haunted houses and something else. So it's more about what's going on in the story and the other things around it. Because horror is also very much a character-driven story, like yeah. romance. Yeah. You have to sympathize with the heroes of the story, or else you're not going to care if the monster gets them and eats them. Right. And as a non-horror reader, I think, yeah, that's something we don't really think about. We just get sort of caught up in the gore of it or the potential gore of it and don't think about the characters and the the feelings. The dread and the tension and the, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Right. Um, But you have to also remember, and this is very important to remember, when the world is a dumpster fire, Mm -hmm. people go one of two ways. And you see this. Um, They either want something more gentle. This is why the Hallmark Channel's uh, ratings are through the roof. Yeah. And they now have two running simultaneously all the time and getting high ratings. And also the other thing is to go to something worse, right? Because if your life is terrible, for some people, they want to read about something even worse to give them perspective. So what are you seeing in horror? What's like the hot stuff? Yeah. So the hottest things right now, and I mentioned it with Stranger Things, is this 80s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is just because of the age of the people who are in charge of making decisions. Old people. Yeah. 40s and 50s. <clears throat> yeah. Us. So, um, but we're in charge now. And so what do we uh-huh. want to do? We want to look at, look at our past. Yeah. And yes, kids are watching it and loving it. But that 80s nostalgia is hugely popular. And we're seeing it in the remake of the 80s classic Stephen King uh, books like It into movies, oh, uh, wow. but all the classic ones, right? right? They're doing the the Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel to mm-hmm. The Shining. So there's a lot of that happening. And then there's a brand new resource called Ladies of Horror Fiction. That's the website. Put it in Google. You'll find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've created an entire database of women in horror fiction. They're reviewing books by women. And they are they do have the the deceased authors on there, but they're really focusing on the living authors. Yeah, so upcoming there's, books. And... and there's this resurgence in women taking back the genre. And one of the things you see under that trend is a subtrend that body horror is really popular. We saw a little of it when Carmen Maria Machado got nominated yeah. for the National Book Award for her body and other parties. Yes. And that has a lot of body horror in it. And last year's Stoker for Best First Novel was a wonderful debut, which was reviewed in Booklist, was called The Rust Maidens by Gwendolyn Keist. Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing example of women taking control when there isn't control story. It's a story of the Rust Belt. It's in two time frames. The Rust Belt in in Cleveland. All the stories we know, you know, when the lake was on fire and things were going terribly. Um, that story from then and a story from now with this woman looking back at what happened and girls were turning into these actual rust maidens and they mm-hmm. became a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. And it was grotesque, but they were also beautiful. Can you, so let me have you back up for a second. Yeah. Can you talk about what body horror is? Sure. So body horror is when you take the horror is comes from the body of yourself, right? 
and the bodies of people around you. So there's transformation of bodies. It's not okay. just a monster. So in Her Body and Other Parties, which a lot of people have read, it's that idea of the story about the woman with the ribbon tied around her neck, mm-hmm. right? And when she takes it off, the head falls yes. off. Yes. Um, right. So in The Rust Maidens, it's about these girls literally turning into monsters. Their bodies are being transformed. Yeah. Becoming grotesque. Um, and that's really what we're talking about. As you can see, it's, it can go in a lot of directions. Right. And women, of course, are very aware of their bodies. Yeah. And have lived with their bodies as being objectified for many years, mm-hmm. which is horrific in and of itself. And I think that they're very well tuned into this idea and exploring it in right. ways that take it to the next level, a supernatural level. Yeah, I think that's interesting, too, when you think about horror and romance being related on that emotional level and bodily autonomy is a big theme in both of those. Oh, yeah, completely. Mm. And then, so then another big trend, which actually goes from women a little bit, is this idea of this resurgence of the Lovecraftian ideas of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. um, this cosmic horror where these creatures, whether they're specifically Cthulhu and based on Lovecraft or not, but these creatures coming from space and sort of wrecking havoc. Yeah. And this weird fiction is sort of a subset of that. And that, ironically, is also being driven by women people of color and um, non-binary people and LGBTQ are some of our leading authors, like Caitlin Kiernan, who's been around for a long time, Mm -hmm. um, Victor Laval. uh, And it's just, there's a lot of it happening. And H.P. Lovecraft, um, so a lot of our listeners might not be as well-versed in the horror universe as I am, (laughs) but H.P. Lovecraft was writing in the 30s? 20s and 30s. 20s and 30s. He was a total misanthrope. And guess what? Absolutely hate it. Jews, women, uh, queer people, any people of color of any type. And so what's so interesting, so for a while he became persona non grata, right? Yes. We couldn't even talk about him. But his influence is so strong. And I think Caitlin Kiernan has been the one for years carrying on his legacy as an ex- as a non-binary queer person and proud of it. So what happens is these stories, and I think a really great example is The Ballad of Black Tom. Uh, it's a tour novella by Victor Laval. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically a retelling of the horror at Red Hook, which was a Lovecraftian story, and I might have the title a little off. Okay. And his is The Ballad of Black Tom. He basically retold that story with a black main character mm-hmm. uh, from the African-American experience uh, perspective. Yeah. And so there's a lot about racism there, and set it in the 1920s also, 1920s and 30s, around the time of the Depression. There's a reason this story struck a chord. It was an amazing Lovecraftian retelling, but I always like to describe it as like he's giving a giant middle finger to Lovecraft. Like, hey, I'm a black guy and I can do this. And yet, but there's an affection there for what he's brought, what Lovecraft brought and left for the genre. That is so important. And then I think the last, and and it sort of leaned on this by saying it was a novella, right? The Battle of Black Tom. Um, Short fiction is a huge trend in all speculative fiction right now. Yes. Um, But we're talking about horror specifically, but it's definitely in all... And the blending in the short fiction, it's a lot easier to blend all the speculative genres together, which is kind yeah. of which is kind of from fun. story to story. Um, like Victor Laval did the People's History of the United States mm-hmm. with John Joseph Adams, and they did basically horror, science fiction, and fantasy stories. Um, and they don't want you to classify it as one or the other, but short fiction in general, horror as a way to enter it through a shorter story. First of all, it works better if you can read it in one or two sittings, because if you can put the book down bury it in the backyard or put it in your freezer, you have time to get away from the fear. Mm -hmm. But if you can read it straight through in one sitting, a story or one to two sittings in a novella, 
you really feel that fear and dread, which is what the readers want. Right. Even if you don't want to yes. yourself. The terror, it consumes you and you don't have a chance to get away from it. You can't. And then when you finish it, it's more satisfying to someone who's mm-hmm. looking for that. And I think that that's why we're seeing a lot of short stories. And in fact, I'm seeing even a smaller trend within the short story collections. And it's not one I'm seeing. Ellen Datlow told me this. She's okay. a famous right. um, editor for horror. She said, you're seeing now a lot of short story collections. And I think recent ones like Growing Things by Paul Tremblay and a new one that's coming out, Full Throttle by Joe Hill, do this. They are short story collections, and then they usually include toward the end a full novella, huh. um, one longer piece. And almost always Ellen was telling me it's at the end, and she's seeing that a lot. Um, and that's because we're sort of building up as you go through and you get that longer piece at the end to leave you satisfied but wanting more. So, yeah, so taking it as the shape of the collection as a whole is... You buy those collections for your horror readers. You put them on display, mm-hmm. not just at Halloween, yes. because people like horror all year long. And, in fact, if you're putting the books on display other times of year, your readers will be like, hey, this person knows that right. I like horror. Um, Maybe I should go ask them for more. You can also introduce yourself just by reading the table of contents to new names and authors you might not know of. Yeah. And you can also let your readers introduce themselves. Hey, I just saw it. Maybe I should try some horror. Oh, I don't want to take out an entire book if I'm not going to like it. Let me try some stories. Right, especially Stephen King book because those are big. Yeah, they are. And it's it's, it's a commitment. Uh, so, so that's a good segue into talking to patrons. You and I were talking a little bit beforehand about whether horror patrons or or maybe whether genre patrons have different I don't want to say behave differently but that's what I mean so I guess that's what I'll say like if there's a different way that we serve genre patrons because maybe they're used to serving themselves or I I found when I worked in a public library that you know I love talking about romance and I'll talk to romance to anyone who will listen but patrons didn't want to talk to me which maybe there could be a lot of reasons there. <laughs> but I, I found it was more effective to do indirect RA, you know, displays, lists, bookmarks and stuff for romance and for other genres than the kind of we're at the new bookshelf. So let's have a chit chat conversation. And do you is that yeah. true? Do I need to I think my it's, more? I think it's right and wrong. So it's right in that the really hardcore genre readers are not the ones that are come up to the desk for any genre. Mm-hmm. You maybe the mystery readers, but um, and the romance readers. Once you start to talk to them and they you, they know that you can help them and like them because romance readers do love to talk about the books they're reading. Right. One of my biggest things I say with all displays now that I really want every library to do, and as I travel the country, I try to put this through. Is we need to make our displays more interactive. Mm-hmm. And by interactive, I don't mean that there's like going to be like a little game to play when they stop yeah. every time. Yeah. I'm not gamifying it. What I'm saying is, if we put up a display of horror books, we should say, what books aren't here that you'd like to read? Who's Mm -hmm. your favorite author? Have people put it on a board. Have them put it in a box. Make sure we're trying to let our patrons know we want to know. Yeah. You know, what is your all-time favorite horror book? And we can turn those into lists and put them on our websites. But it also helps us understand what we need that we don't have. And two, let them feel like they have a say. So when you're doing this year-round horror thing, do you think there's... Something different that horror, aside from validation that their reading tastes are something you were able to help them with. But do you think there's something, a way you can talk to patrons to help them know that you know what they like? Or is there something in the RA conversation you should be focusing on with horror readers? Sure. So the first thing is, you know, 
horror is popular, so you can use pop culture to sort of frame the conversation. Yeah, it's a gateway. If you want them to come talk to you, put those if you liked Stranger Things displays mm-hmm. really close to your desk. So when someone stops, you can say, oh, do you like Stranger Things? Yeah. It's really popular. And if you don't like if you like it, you can say, I like it too. But if you don't, say, it's really popular. Yes. So I think if you really want to engage, you've got to not think about making these huge displays with skeletons and vampires and things hanging from the ceiling. Small displays for something that's really popular. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, we have things all year long, like when Bird Box came out in the winter, yeah. when Us came out in the spring, the Jordan Peele movie, when Stranger Things came out. Walking Dead, you know, they just announced that it's ending, the series. Not the TV show, but the the graphic novel. The last issue just came out. People will be sad. But the fact of the matter is, like, make use things that are happening and don't feel like you have to make this grand display. Make a small display. Mm -hmm. On it, say, ask me about more of our horror offerings. We have lots of horror books. Or, you know, I think there's that. Also, when you're just talking with people who are looking for a good read and you seem to, you hear them talking about sort of books that, psychological suspense, really intense thrillers. Yeah. You might want to mention something like a Paul Tremblay, whose Cabin at the End of the World has won every award this last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it won the Stoker, but it also has won um, the Locust. It's, it was nominated for Thriller Awards. Find those crossover titles. I think Sarah Pinebro is a good example of a mm-hmm. crossover author that you can give people. Um, Paul Tremblay is a really good example also. And let them see. And I mentioned the Amakatsu earlier, The Hunger. That's a historical fiction Horror crossover. Yeah, yeah. You know? So when you see people looking for books that have a big emotional pull in another genre, know that there are horror titles there, out there, that yeah. will fit to that. But I then, like that. That's how, good... But then how do you find them, right? Well, yes. I mean, that's sort of the thing um, to always be paying attention to when you're looking at your book list reviews, <laughs> you know, drawing those connections. But, yeah, I like that, again, the connection with the emotion. Maybe it doesn't. Don't be stuck on the horror sticker, whether it's there or not. If they're an emotionally driven reader anyway, like they talk about psychological suspense because of how like the the dread and the fear or even intense thrillers, you could say, hey, if you don't mind a supernatural aspect. Right. And then tell people horror is not all just about blood and gore. Yes. That's extreme horror that really gets that way. And a lot of libraries don't collect a lot of that. Um, Just like they only have the tamest of erotica, you think you have hot erotica. There's more that we don't have. (laughs) The same thing with horror. You think the books are great. They're not. Yeah. that's Yeah. I think maybe that bias, working readers through the bias a little bit could help too. So you talked a little bit about like extreme horror Mm -hmm. and smaller presses. And I think horror is one of the genres where a lot of the interesting work and a lot of the new changes that are happening in the genre are happening in smaller presses. So for collection development purposes, help. Okay. So the very first thing I know, because I did collection development, is there there has to be somebody out there telling you these books are okay. Somebody official. or For a lot of people, like there has to be a review or there has to be some sort of horror maven. Yeah. So, so I have really taken it upon myself on my website, uh, RA for All Horror, to have both a permanent page that I constantly update of resources I trust mm-hmm. and of publishers that you can feel that you trust. But the other thing is, if you want to take a chance on a title, a lot of the small publishers have begun working with Overdrive. Overdrive has made it very easy now. And I've spoken to a few very small press horrors, mm-hmm. um, presses about how they can get 
their titles onto OverDrive. And it's not that hard. There's a way. And OverDrive's committed to it, especially now that the big five are causing so many problems right. with how we're going to get access. The prices are not high. You can take a chance on a book that looks interesting. See if people start reading it in your OverDrive collections. Mm-hmm. And um, and spoiler, they're going to read it because right. I know they do it with romance, especially too. if you promote it yeah. and you know work it into your displays, new and lists titles, and, such. and then you can see what people are enjoying and find more. Do you think um, so? Romance readers for sure have embraced eBooks. Are horror readers? Oh yes. Okay. Oh yes, horror readers, just like romance readers, I think because it's emotionally driven, are voracious. They yeah. read and mm-hmm. read and read, and they cannot get enough. Awesome. Well, so don't be afraid of helping them. They're not monsters. They just like to read about They them. just like to read about monsters. I mean, that, that kind of goes along with what we talked about uh, in the last episode about true crime. You know, people who read true crime aren't serial killers. I love true crime. Uh, I yeah. haven't killed anyone yet. Yeah, good. <laughs> I like that, the hope in that <laughs> statement there. Right. So, you know, examine your bias and then also take Becky's advice. Don't be scared by helping people. Yes. Don't be scared that if you put out books... Oh, no, they're going to ask me more questions. They're going to make me read them. It's okay if you don't read them. Right. But ask them why they like to read them. Yes, exactly. Because that's, you know, that gets at the core of uh, RA service. And so just don't forget about that. The heart of it. The dark heart of Reader's Advisory. Okay. I got to stop talking. Thanks, Becky. You're welcome, Susan. Hi, I'm Melissa Carr, Marketing Director of Booklist. Are you wondering where you can get more information and inspiration on Reader's Advisory and Collection Development? Just meet us on the corner, corner shelf that is, our free bi-monthly newsletter that covers trends and issues relating to books and libraries has even more shelves because it now includes coverage of reference materials and services. Wow, that is a lot of coverage. To get all that goodness in your inbox, sign up for Corner Shelf at booklistonline.com backslash newsletters. Celebrities, they're just like us. If by just like us you mean they are lauded and scrutinized and just generally exist as objects of fascination for us common folk. So, not like us, I guess. All the more reason to get lost for a bit in a notable person's life, which is even easier to do when the celebrity is narrating their own story. Please behold, Booklist audio editor Heather Booth's terrific suggestions for celebrity memoirs read by the author. Hello, Shelf Care listeners. I'm Heather Booth, Booklist's audiobook editor, with some audiobook listening suggestions. This time I'm taking the easy way out of a contentious subject, the author-narrator. Any audiobook listener has an opinion on this topic, and it's usually not lightly held. There are those who love listening to an author read their own work. They swear it brings them closer to both the author and the work. On the other side, those who avoid these recordings like the plague, preferring to let the authors be authors and the professional narrators take it from there. The thin line between the two, where these rival bands of audiobook fans can usually connect is, in my humble opinion, the perfect escapist audiobook break, the celebrity memoir. Celebrity memoirs, particularly of the gossipy, bawdy, humorous variety, have long been one of my preferred escapist genres. 
As a teen services librarian, it gave me a modicum of comfort to know that this is one genre that I was assured would be just mine, that I wouldn't have to think too deeply about how to book talk them or what kind of teen reader or display I would match with the books. I could just read for fun. And boy, are these fun on audio, even the ones you can talk about with teens. Take Amy Poehler's Yes, Please to start. Poehler may not actually be Leslie Nope, but she's got this infectious earnestness clearly there on the page, and it's even better in your ears. Whether she's talking about the early Second City days, brushing shoulders with, being inspired by, and finally becoming a respected collaborator with her comedy heroes, or the challenges of gaining respect as a smart woman in a business full to the brim with powerful men, to her heartbreaking one-line recap of her divorce, Polar is nothing but genuine. Genuine is also a good word for my next pick, Becoming by Michelle Obama another book that really must be listened to. The First Lady's memoir is famously frank, and listening to her tell her own story brings another depth to that openness and honesty. From the pain of personal loss and political defeats to the delight and love she finds in family and passion projects, to a hilariously audible side-eye while recalling Barack's foibles as a young husband and aspiring politician, it's all there in her voice. The printed word just cannot bring everything to the reader, that this audio experience does, as Michelle's voice truly allows us to read between the lines. Part of what makes these celebrity memoirs so much fun to listen to is that we already know the voice. We've already heard them so often, it's like we already know them. So getting to hear this other side, this extra intimate side right there next to us, not as an actor or a singer or a politician, it's almost like we're getting a VIP backstage pass. Three musical memoirs are great for this up-close and personal look. First, singer-songwriter and celebrity reality TV judge Ben Folds delves into his early life and personal lessons in A Dream About Lightning Bugs, A Life of Music and Cheap Lessons. Folds can be laconic or earnest in his delivery of his memoir, and he has a showman's sense of timing. Of a similar era, Ani DeFranco's No Walls and the Recurring Dream are we sensing a title trend here, is a delightful, rollicking, and reflective examination of her unconventional upbringing, infused with her poetry, and punctuated by plenty of her politics, too. Both are sure to please fans. Not a fan? Try Bruce Springsteen's bestseller, Born to Run. Everyone knows the boss, but who can really know him? Our reviewer calls this 20-hour experience exalting and exhausting, and notes how perfectly nuanced his delivery is in this personal memoir full of candor. It's as much a coming-of-age tale for his generation, framed as it is against the political and cultural landscape, as it is into the, a glimpse into the celebrity life. Finally, my most recent favorite self-narrated celebrity memoir, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder, by the cleverly mustachioed cult film director John Waters. Now, this is the kind of escapist celebrity memoir I was talking about when I said it's nice to know you won't be talking to your teen patrons about these books. Waters is beyond irreverent, but he is also so unfailingly charming as he delivers his advice and opinions on fame, fashion, sex, Provincetown, Andy Warhol, dropping acid at 70, you name it, that even his gross-out tales from a life as transgressive as it is entertaining wouldn't get anywhere near the laughs from just the print. Find reviews of these titles and many more at Booklist Online or in the audiobook review section of Booklist in Print or in my bi-monthly newsletter, All Things Audio. 
Be sure to check out my periodic feature podcast connection in Booklist, where we review books just for you. Yes, you and other podcast listeners just like you. Until next time, this has been Booklist Audiobook Editor, Heather Booth. Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. And this is the Dewey Decimal Podcast. No, 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 wait. This is an ad for the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Join me and the Dewey Decimal Correspondents each month for conversations with authors, librarians, scholars, and more about topics from the library world and beyond. Past guests Sally Field, Bill Knight, a science guy, Kwame Alexander, Margaret Atwood, Stephanie Powell Watts, Viet Tan Nguyen, Brad Meltzer, Rick Steves, Ken Burns, Michael Eric Dyson, and many more have joined us to talk about everything from books and writing to library architecture and design. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thanks for listening. Now is the time where I troll the halls of Booklist HQ, looking for unsuspecting coworkers to come to my office to talk about books. This time I snagged Maggie Regan, Senior Editor of Books for Youth, Booklist, and Book Links. She and I have talked books before, mostly when I need suggestions from my teenage niece, whose interests intersect with Maggie's, i.e. epic fantasy with a hearty dose of romance. But we also talk when I get on my misinformed high horse about how vampires are no longer popular in romance or fantasy, and she quickly proves me wrong. Because I am wrong, but I don't like to admit it. Don't worry, we talk about that here, too. So I'm here with Maggie Reagan, who is a senior editor in the Books for Youth department. She's the brains. And I mean, I guess the brawn also behind book links. It's getting weird. It gets heavy. Yeah. Um, so thanks for joining me in here um, in the office of squeaky chairs. Yeah, that was my chair. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely my chair. Yeah. So you cover a lot of teen stuff for book list. Yes. Is that... Do you find yourself drawn to teen books? Yeah. For fun? For fun. And for work. Yeah. Convenient. I know. No, yeah. They're they're my favorite. They've always been my favorite. So it works out well. Yeah. What? So, I mean, you're a grown-up now. Kind of. Do you, well, yes. Do you feel like your, your appreciation for these books has changed, like, since you've been a teenager or you consume them differently because you're not a teenager, but you're still reading about teenage protagonists? Oh, well, yes, and then there's the whole added element of having to now consume them critically. Right. Um, Oh, interesting. So, reading them as not a teenager, but reading them with the awareness of, I guess, teenagers in mind. Yeah, and sort of the structure and trope and the art of it. Yeah. Um, I know they say... That if you're going to write YA, you should know some YAs. Yeah. And I feel like that is, that's that's true for reading them too. It's, it's, it's good to know a few teenagers if you're going to be reading things that are, 
are four teenagers. Right. For me, I have like twenty six cousins. And, oh. Uh, a lot of my these are these are the books that a lot of my cousins are reading and um, are always asking me about. So I always love uh, going to talk to my cousins about some of the books that I've been reviewing and seeing what they're excited about and that. what they've been reading and what their opinions are on books as opposed to mine, which definitely makes me feel sometimes like I've gotten everything completely wrong. Well, that's what teenagers are for. Exactly. Do you feel like their enthusiasm makes you more enthusiastic about it? Like it's sort of contagious or? Yeah, well, it kind of reminds me why I was excited about books in the first place. Yeah. Um, Especially when, you know, a job starts to feel like a job. Sure, as it does. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I think Donna and I talked about this in a previous episode that when you have to read for work, sometimes reading for fun is hard. Yeah. So do you, when you have time to read for fun, do you find yourself still looking to teen books? Yes and no. But I think we also tend to sort of like pigeonhole ourselves. And um, like, I just, I just, just sort of get into this mindset where I'm like, oh, that's my type of book. I have to review it. So when I, which for me tends to be um, YA fantasy and Mm -hmm. definitely YA dark fantasy. So when I need a break, I review a bunch of YA romances or sometimes YA nonfiction has been a really weird thing that I've started reviewing a lot of when I feel burned out on my normal stuff. Um, Or actually recently I've started coming in here and stealing your adult women's fiction books. Yeah, because there's, I mean, there's good, like, thematic crossover Mm -hmm. with the things that we like, except I read the grown-up version, which just basically means the protagonist is not a teenager. Right. Uh, And maybe there's more... It's a little sexier. Right. Sometimes, yeah. Um, Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. So, it's just like, it's a different part of my brain. I I just give the one, the burned-out part a rest and read something else. I like it. And that's sort of a... um, sort of a librarian tip is when uh, patrons come to you and they're like, I don't know, I'm tired of reading, then we usually suggest to like, well, try a nonfiction. And that has worked for me as a reader. Something you wouldn't normally read. Yeah. Speaking of things you wouldn't normally read, no, that's not the right transition because we're going to speak of things (laughs) you are excited about. So as uh, our resident teen fantasy expert, teen fantasy slash romance slash (laughs) feelings, teen feelings expert um what what have you brought that you're excited about yeah no i went to some of my old fallbacks this time um so these are the these are the dark white these are just i brought in three books that star a bunch of dead things okay um so did you know that first of all let's just start with this did you know vampires are coming back now listen how excited are you are you excited I think I, you look really excited I, you guys can't see her but she looks really excited i like i don't have a problem with vampires but i just feel like i i feel strongly that they're going away and i don't appreciate this evidence to the contrary frankly they're coming back. on my podcast you cannot keep a vampire down maybe for adults they're dead they're not dead they're i'm dead. just being a jerk <laughs> well they are dead but oh right they're undead maybe that's what i meant they're never really Let's dead. T- tell me the books, would you? <laughs> the books. Okay, they're, they're two very different kinds. This is just proving that the world of vampires is varied and never tapped out because they never die. Um, so we have two. The first one is Jen Bennett's The Lady Rogue, which is a straight-up Dracula story. Oh. This is like, actually, this is like a historical fiction romance that is set sort of against the the backdrop of the Vlad the Impaler legend slash not really a legend because it's actually historical, but the whole vampire thing. Um, and then the other one is Renee Adier's The Beautiful, 
which is kind of a interview with the vampire type novel that's set in oh god like 1870 yeah 1872 new orleans oh um and it's about a girl who is fleeing France, moves to New Orleans, and uh, finds herself tangled up with a bunch of kind of shady people from uh, New Orleans underworld during the carnival season. And also there's a serial killer, serial killer, mm-hmm. stalking, stalking a bunch of girls in New Orleans. And she ends up in his path. And guess what? One of these people is not alive because he's undead because he's stealing blood. Oh, so is that, do you think, um, I mean, historical fiction has always been a thing in YA literature, but mm-hmm. like this sort of dark, supernatural historical fiction, is that new or is that something that's growing or is that just, it is as big as it has ever been? I would say it goes in and out of favor. Um, I feel like it is something that's like more consistently big and adult. Mm-hmm. than it is because the last vampire craze I feel like when I think back about the the books that were big in the vampire craze 15 years ago 15 years ago oh, uh, they were most of them were contemporary yeah um, Twilight yeah etc etc those dudes and which is not to say that there weren't historical fiction ones right mixed in with there but a lot of the big ones were um, set in high schools which I also mm-hmm. love give me any sort of classic and retell it in a high school setting and I'm there. So are these two books that are The Lady Rogue and The Beautiful, are they romantic at all? Oh yeah, both of them. Okay. So what, so what kind of readers should be on the lookout for these books or what kind of readers should pay, should librarians be on the lookout to give these books to? How's that? I would say, well, keep in mind that it has been, um, it has been 15 years since since Twilight, which means that all of the teenagers who were reading that last set of vampire books are now adults, which yeah. means there's a whole new crop of um, crop of readers who who may be interested in in vampire books who haven't had a lot of new content. Yeah. Um, and oh my gosh, I wonder if that they're like, you know, when when I was a kid, I used to like sneak. My mom, she used to read, like, big doorstopper historicals mm-hmm. that had, like, weird love scenes and stuff. And I used to sneak those, like, I feel like teenagers now maybe were sneaking Twilight off. Probably, yeah, mom's book. your mom's book. That's crazy to think of. <laughs> Not your mother's Twilight. Well, and I did, I got, like, vampire crazy when I was, like, 14, and it was before Twilight came out. So mm-hmm. I remember, like, trolling through, me and my best friend were, like, trolling through the library looking for vampire books, not really turning anything up, just coming to, like, looking for a bunch of things from, like, the 70s or whatever, which was when the last vampire wave hit yes. with Interview with a Vampire. So it's just, it's just time again. And also these are doing a lot of, they're just doing a lot of new um, and interesting things uh, that that the last round didn't necessarily do like I feel like it was it was pretty white and straight the last time yeah. and we're living in a different economy so right which is well just, it's always a little right yes <laughs> our our eyes have been opened a yeah. little bit more to uh the beauty of a variety of stories mm-hmm. but I yeah I think that that's kind of if it is just the same old thing coming around again it's not as interesting as when and I think that's maybe what makes writers interested in doing yeah. it too is if they can build on it now they're doing the thing that everybody loved a decade and a half ago, but just going with a twist, another level down. 
Yeah. All right. Well, um, I look forward to reading both of those. Say the titles and authors again. Yes. So it's The Lady Rogue by Jen Bennett. And this is uh, from Simon Pulse. And it's out in September. And then The Beautiful by Renee Adier, which is from Putnam and is out in October. Cool. Thanks for chatting, Maggie. Thanks for having me, Susan. That was a little squeak from my chair. It was definitely weird. All right. Bye. (laughs) That's the episode, folks. Thank you to Becky Spradford for talking to me about horror and for opening my eyes to the fact that, y'all, it really is a genre about feelings. I love reading about feelings. And thank you to my colleagues Heather Booth and Maggie Reagan for sharing some excellent reading and listening suggestions. If this all seemed excellent to you, why don't you subscribe to Shelf Care the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are available to be subscribed to. You can find the show notes for this episode at booklistonline.com shelf-care. I've been Susan McGuire, and this is Booklist's Shelf Care the Podcast. Happy reading! Happy reading!